live every day with some degree of anxiety. It feels to me like an oppressive fear of the future, the next hour, the next day, the next year. For a guy who practices meditation, I must be the least mindful person in the world. At least that's what it feels like when I'm anxious. The irony that can be discovered in moments of mindfulness, which sometimes occur in a flash, is that things aren't that bad in the present. What is the near future but the upcoming present? And yet when that present comes, I'll be fretting the new future rather than appreciating the arrival of a perfectly good present. Implicit in the anxiety is a conviction of free will, and thus a sense of responsibility for the future. Thus the burden of the future is entangled with a twinge of pained conscience over my expected role in its appearance. It is evident that conscientiousness in doing one's duty to oneself and to others is necessary and good. But when this sense is turned too high, it becomes pathological. Is this sense of dread that I am not good enough, not doing my best, failing to bring about the proper future state, just as arbitrary and unproductive as the counting of footsteps or the toggling of light switches manifested by an obsessive compulsive? He too is frightened of the future. He too is unfulfilled and anxious. To gain a sense of control, he counts or taps or checks and rechecks. I think and suffer over the near future. My thoughts might be just as useless as his taps are in bringing about an improved future. And yet, no, I can do better. I'm never doing my best. If I matter in the world, then it matters what I do. I can't escape it. Part of the problem must be that I am the mind of a human animal that lives in a cage. After all, humans are a race of clan-dwelling hunter-gatherers. The set and setting are all fucked up. Anxiety and depression are, in this sense, not unlike the autoimmune diseases that emerge in modern industrialized societies. The environment is too sterile, so the immune system turns upon its host. The modern brain, too, turns against its host. Ten thousand generations of human ancestry glare in judgment upon my failures to hunt and to gather, to take my rightful place in membership of the clan. The closest I can manage is to take a role as a kind of medicine man or shaman, to learn and think deeply and to share what I find with my society. To the best of my ability, at least I can do this. Like the hunter hones his skills with the bow, I try to hone my skills at contemplation. I hope that I can be useful in my craft and be recognized. But the future is uncertain, and I might be a fool. Thomas Nagel published a classic paper in the Philosophical Review in 1974. It was called, What is it like to be a bat? If you're entrenched in thinking about consciousness and philosophy of mind, then you've almost certainly heard of it. In the course of this podcast, I've covered some classic thought experiments and arguments. I told you about Mary, the color scientist. I've covered Searle's Chinese room, and so on. But I haven't yet given Nagel's bats their due. The timing seems apt as well, because I ended the last episode with a story which illustrates the failure's potential in reductionist reasoning. Let me begin by taking a piece directly from Nagel's paper. Quote, I assume we all believe that bats have experience. After all, they are mammals, and there is no more doubt that they have experience than that mice or pigeons or whales have experience. I have chosen bats instead of wasps or flounders because if one travels too far down the phylogenetic tree, people gradually shed their faith that there is experience there at all. Bats, although more closely related to us than those other species, nevertheless present a range of activity and a sensory apparatus so different from ours that the problem I want to pose is exceptionally vivid, though it certainly could be raised with other species. Even without the benefit of philosophical reflection, anyone who has spent some time in an enclosed space with an excited bat knows what it is to encounter a fundamentally alien form of life. 
I have said that the essence of the belief that bats have experience is that there is something that it is like to be a bat. Now we know that most bats perceive the external world primarily by sonar or echolocation, detecting the reflections from objects within range of their own rapid, subtly modulated high-frequency shrieks. Their brains are designed to correlate the outgoing impulses with the subsequent echoes, and the information thus acquired enables bats to make precise discriminations of distance, size, shape, motion, and texture comparable to those we make by vision. But bat sonar, though clearly a form of perception, is not similar in its operation to any sense that we possess, and there is no reason to suppose that it is subjectively like anything we can experience or imagine. This appears to create difficulties for the notion of what it is like to be a bat." Unquote. A bit further on, he writes, quote, Our own experience provides the basic material for our imagination, whose range is therefore limited. It will not help to try to imagine that one has webbing on one's arms, which enables one to fly around at dusk and dawn catching insects in one's mouth. That one has very poor vision and perceives the surrounding world by a system of reflected high-frequency sound signals, and that one spends the day hanging upside down by one's feet in an attic. Insofar as I can imagine this, which is not very far, it tells me only what it would be like for me to behave as a bat behaves. But that is not the question. I want to know what it is like for a bat to be a bat. Yet if I try to imagine this, I am restricted to the resources of my own mind, and those resources are inadequate to the task. I cannot perform it either by imagining additions to my present experience, or by imagining segments gradually subtracted from it, or by imagining some combination of additions, subtractions, and modification." Unquote. Okay, so Nagel has introduced an epistemological problem with regard to foreign instances of consciousness, using bats as a case in point. It's necessary for the argument in this form that we accept the assumption that it is like something to be a bat. I am right with Nagel on that assumption, but the deeper presentation does not require bats. It could refer to primates or dolphins or men from Mars. The problem is that of subjectivity versus objectivity. Having fully reduced a phenomenon objectively does not necessarily reduce it subjectively. In the case of consciousness, it is subjectivity itself which we are asked to reduce to physics or to identify with something physical. For the record, and as you will know if you are a follower of mine, I tend to think that consciousness will be identified with something physical, but that it will be found to be emergent such that it will not succumb to deep reduction. Nagel writes, quote, Conscious experience is a widespread phenomenon. It occurs at many levels of animal life, though we cannot be sure of its presence in the simpler organisms, and it is very difficult to say in general what provides evidence of it. Some extremists have been prepared to deny it even of animals other than man. No doubt it occurs in countless forms totally unimaginable to us on other planets and other solar systems throughout the universe, but no matter how the form may vary, the fact that an organism has conscious experience at all means basically that there is something it is like to be that organism. There may be further implications about the form of the experience. There may even, though I doubt it, be implications about the behavior of the organism, but fundamentally an organism has conscious mental states if and only if there is something that it is like to be that organism. We may call this the subjective character of experience. It is not captured by any of the familiar, recently devised, reductive analyses of the mental, for all of them are logically compatible with its absence. It is not analyzable in terms of any explanatory system of functional states or intentional states, since these could be ascribed to robots or automata that behaved like people, though they experienced nothing." Unquote. In that passage, Nagel specifies the problem further. The problem is that a complete objective description of the correlates of consciousness would provide us with very little as regards an explanation of its subjective character. 
Just for fun, let's do a little reduction now. Behavior reduces to mechanics. Walking or talking or eating or mating are complex behaviors, but they are nothing more than the coordinated movements of excitable tissues, muscles or cilia or whatever. This is accomplished in mammals such as us, in the case of skeletal muscles, by means of networks of neurons with their business ends terminating onto the muscle cells at neuromuscular junctions. Chemical neurotransmitter is the beginning of a cascade of molecular events in the muscles that convert the signal into mechanical force. So behavior reduces to mechanics. Intracellular mechanics reduce to chemistry. Chemical molecules interacting reduce here to biophysics, and this complex special case of physics reduces to fundamental physics. If the body of the organism were nothing more than a super complex automaton consisting of such reducible structures, then the mystery of its behavior would be utterly reducible and objectively describable. But there's the rub. It's like something quite specific to be such an organism behaving, and the objective reduction of its behavior would neither predict nor explain that fact of the organism. Nagel writes, quote, In a sense, the seeds of this objection to the reducibility of experience are already detectable in successful cases of reduction. For in discovering sound to be, in reality, a wave phenomenon in air or other media, we leave behind one viewpoint to take up another, and the auditory human or animal viewpoint that we leave behind remains unreduced. Members of radically different species may both understand the same physical events in objective terms, and this does not require that they understand the phenomenal forms in which those events appear to the senses of members of, that, of the other species. Thus, it is a condition of their referring to a common reality that their more particular viewpoints are not part of the common reality that they both apprehend. The reduction can succeed only if the species-specific viewpoint is omitted from what is to be reduced. But while we are right to leave this point of view aside in seeking a fuller understanding of the external world, we cannot ignore it permanently, since it is the essence of the internal world and not merely a point of view on it. Most of the neo-behaviorism of recent philosophical psychology results from the effort to substitute an objective concept of mind for the real thing, in order to have nothing left over which cannot nothing left over which cannot be reduced. If we acknowledge that a physical theory of mind must account for the subjective character of experience, we must admit that no presently available conception gives us a clue how this could be done. The problem is unique. If mental processes are indeed physical processes, then there is something it is like, intrinsically, to undergo certain physical processes." Unquote. As much as any other essay on the subject, Nagel's What Is It Like to Be a Bat points out the hard problem of consciousness. Keep in mind, the article was written in 1974, a good while before Chalmers gave us the term hard problem of consciousness. One of my favorite of Nagel's lines concisely sums things up. He said, I want to know what it is like for a bat to be a bat. I enjoy that little formulation. Physical reduction has a lot of explanatory power, but it misses altogether certain emergent phenomena. Let me explore that proposition for a minute here to see if it stands up. I'll take a relatively simple case. Is there such a thing as a forest? Is there such a thing as an organism? Is there such a thing as a colony or a body of water? Okay, in each of these instances, which we could go on listing for the duration of the episode, there is a collection of physical things which are arranged in a complex and interconnected way. A forest is more than the sum of its trees, in effect. For example, an ecosystem of fungi and plants, of insects and insect-eating predators and nesting birds and territorial mammals and so on, depends on the concentration of biodiversity in space and time. The ecosystem is not the addition of each tree's contribution to the whole, because in isolation the trees are not sufficient to provide for the forest resident species. 
Only with a complex of trees and fungi and insects and so on do you have the requisite conditions for birds and mammals and so on. Likewise for an organism or a body of water. Let's take the organism for example. Is it more than the sum of its individual cells? Yes. Take the case of gametes and reproduction in a mammal. Cardiac cells and liver cells and so on are all necessary to provide resources to the gametes. But cardiac cells and liver cells cannot continue into the future without the gamete cells. All these cells and their interactions are necessary and none are sufficient on their own. So there is the emergence of properties evident in these cases and in any other cases we wish to analyze. But I don't think it's fair to say that reductionist scientists, science cannot explain these systems and even predict the emergent phenomena. At least that's not the move I'm trying to make here. Imagine we want to mix a group of chemicals in a beaker, which have never before been mixed. Imagine that we know the exact chemical structures of these molecules. Let's even allow that we know everything about these chemicals in isolation. Can we predict the products of this experiment? Of course we can. Knowledge of the laws of physics, temperature and pressure and so on, together with knowledge of chemistry, should allow us to pre predict exactly what will come of the experiment. This is a testament to the power of science and empiricism. It makes predictions which turn out to be fulfilled. It's fairly trivial to predict the outcome of this experiment if we have complete understanding of the starting materials and accurate chemical models. Note that the products that wind up in the beaker at the end of the experiment may exhibit properties that do not describe the starting reagents. I conclude that emergent properties of these sorts are perfectly friendly to reductionist explanations. Extrapolating from there, we can explain the whole forest or the whole organism by means of reduction, so long as we have sufficient knowledge of the starting materials. In principle, the whole system is subject to explanatory reduction. Thus, I think that my starting proposition is on shaky ground. I said that physical reduction fails to explain some emergent phenomena. Now it appears that the kind of mundane emergence I've been discussing should be reducible after all. I recall Patricia Churchland making this observation. This is from her book, Neurophilosophy. She wrote, quote, To put the matter informally, if a property of one theory has causal powers that are not equaled or comprehended by any property in the second more basic theory, then the property is considered to be emergent with respect to the second theory. Emergent property is also used in the neuroscientific literature with a quite different sense, roughly equivalent to network property. Consider a set of cells in the retina that are wired so as to collectively constitute a movement, detectors, a movement detector. Even though none of the individual cells is itself a movement detector, the functional property of being a movement detector may understandably be described as emergent relative to the individual neurons in the circuit. However, the functional property is certainly and obviously reducible to the neurophysiological properties of the network. Indeed, once we understand the network, we have the reductive story in hand. Although this is a useful sense of emergence, which Dennett calls innocent emergence, it is clearly not the same intended by property dualists in their arguments against reductionism." Unquote. We have, I think, discovered that the kind of emergence which manifests in the forest or the lake or the organism are generally of Daniel Dennett's innocent variety. Now let's deal with the case of consciousness in Nagel's argument. He said that the problem of consciousness is unique. Maybe he's right. Could it be that consciousness represents a different kind of emergence, one which is not so innocent? As relayed to you earlier, Nagel made the following statement, quote, Members of radically different species may both understand the same physical events in objective terms, and this does not require that they understand the phenomenal forms in which those events appear to the senses of members of other species, unquote. 
So supposing that a human hears a sound corresponding to a pressure wave event in the world, what we call a sound wave, another species might detect that wave and have a totally different experience corresponding to it. That's obvious enough, but that misses the true situation. We do not hear sound waves. A sound is a type of conscious content. It occurs due to intracranial events, neuronal functions in the cerebral cortex, not due to pressure waves in the environment. Proof of this is that we could electronically stimulate those cortical neurons directly and the subject would consciously perceive the sound. Likewise, the bat might be having what we call a visual experience. It might actually be seeing in the real sense of the word, but by means of echolocation rather than optics. Maybe the experiences are comparable, but we don't know. Maybe they are totally different. Just as you cannot describe seeing to a blind person in a manner that would help them understand it, we might have no means of comprehending the echolocation experience of bats. As far as that goes, I agree with Thomas Nagel. Let's move right to the crux of the issue. Is consciousness an example of a truly irreducible phenomenon? If so, then consciousness is a fundamental property in the universe, in that it cannot be explained or predicted by other phenomena. Here's a proposal that might be sensible, or it might be totally stupid. What if consciousness is an emergent, fundamental property? According to this proposal, the conditions for consciousness require deeper fundamental properties of physics, just like everything else. The radical claim is that upon that foundation, new fundamental properties can be constructed. Does that make any sense? I don't know. But consider this. Our universe came into being at some point with the Big Bang. This was a condition of extremely low entropy, wherein everything is said to have been condensed into a single point. Space and time, matter and energy, and the laws of physics emerged from there. Yeah, I said emerged. Local to our universe, then, there are fundamental laws. But beyond our universe, we have no way of saying anything at all. Suppose there is more to existence than just our universe. That idea makes sense, since reason demands that some explanation be given to the original, low-entropy state of our universe. Outside of our universe, the fundamental laws need not apply. We might suppose that even deeper fundamental laws exist there, though. If that is the case, then an instance of my proposal has taken place. Irreducible fundamental facts have emerged upon a substrate of deeper fundamental facts. To stretch this idea to the maximum, consciousness might be described as a universe within a universe, literally. Each unified conscious mind is a universe unto itself, built upon a universal substrate within a deeper universal substrate. Our physical universe is one of many. The laws under which it operates are dependent on those of a greater, more fundamental universe which contains multitudes. The different universes might have some things in common with one another, and they might have other things which are distinct. Likewise, our physical universe contains multitudes of subjective universes. The laws that obtain for the universes of human consciousness may be quite of a kind with those of bats. Or perhaps not. Mm -hmm.